listening to Inside Healthy Teams by Apricot Consulting, a series that draws on the experience of experts to unearth the principles of personal and team leadership. For more information, go to apricotconsulting.us. Well, welcome, everybody. Um, I welcome you to the Apricot Consulting podcast, where it's our privilege to be able to interview some of the most um, innovative and creative leaders that Apricot's worked with over a, a long period of time. Um, it's Today, it's my privilege to introduce to you Mr. Ray Horsborough. Um, as you listen to Ray today, you'll begin to understand um, what an amazing leader Ray has been. Ray has led some of um, Australia's most and uh, interesting companies. He's had huge influence in Australian rules football, um, is involved with charities and so on and so on. So Ray's had an enormous influence in uh, the fabric of um, the Australian nation. So Ray, thanks for joining us. It really is a privilege to have you with us today. Thank you, Derek. So, Ray, you're a bit of a rags-to-riches story, aren't you? Like, you you and I have chatted often, but you were brought up in Footscray when Footscray was tough. Dad came back from the war. Dad was damaged from the Second World War. Tell us a bit about some of that stuff. Yeah, well, I, I was actually uh, known as a legacy boy. My I was the oldest of four children, but I was 11 when my father passed away due to war injuries. And uh, most of my memories were uh, my mother taking us on three buses from Williamstown to Heidelberg to the hospital to visit my father on a Sunday. We had to get a bus from Williamstown to Mooney Ponds, Mooney Ponds to Heidelberg, and then from Heidelberg to the hospital was our all-day Sunday visits. Uh, My father was uh, a naval officer a lieutenant commander in the Navy, a career officer, but was knocked about badly in the war and uh, didn't make it. So we were under the wing of Legacy, which was a magnificent organisation. And uh, my legatee, what what they called the the person who was delegated to sort of look after the family, they didn't interfere with the family. They were available for the widows, in my case, my mother, to contact if they needed any help to, you know, to process the documentation for pensions and all the rest of it. But Legacy also provided uh, an outlet for for the legatees, the junior legatees, which I was... We we had a boys' club that met on Friday nights at the Footscray Drill Hall. it was a basketball competition between the various clubs. I remember Ron Barassi, who was a junior legatee, was in the Auburn club. I was in the Footscray club. Mm-hmm. And uh, we played basketball on a Friday night, and he ran out and played football on the Saturday. Interesting. Interesting stuff. And I remember... But, but my legatee was a bloke called Captain Sam Benson, yeah. who was a very tall, highly decorated naval officer but very strict, stringent sort of a guy. He was the local uh, councillor and mayor of Williamstown where we lived, and then he went into federal politics as the member for Batman and uh, as a Labor member, 
and he was head of the Port Phillip Sea Pilots after he retired from the Navy. And he used to bring the go out to um, Queenscliff and get on the boats and bring the ships in. But I used to have to go and see him over every second Sunday at his house, and he'd say, "Stand up straight while I'm talking to you." And uh, he'd go and visit the school. I remember the headmaster calling me at Williamstown High School one day and said, "Who's this Benson fella?" I said, "Why? He wants to know how you're behaving and what your marks are. You are you doing your homework?" And so Ray, um, tell us, how does how does uh a kid in it, really, a single-parent family, you know, loses his dad growing up in the, the west of Melbourne. How do you become the influential leader in Australia that you've become? How did it, Tell us that journey. How did that happen? Well, I think, you know, as an 11-year-old with three other siblings, I sort of felt the obligation to support my mother. And, uh, I mean, I, I started selling papers as a 13-year-old, getting up at four in the morning to go to the railway station to catch the the papers that were delivered on the first train. And I got an extra six shillings a week or something to count out all the papers for each of the paper boys on the railway station. They'd come and collect them because I felt an obligation to help support my mother. And I, I got a job at the glassworks at Spotswood as a 15-year-old uh, making making up cartons, and uh, the manager of the glassworks was also a, leg- a legacy man. And Sam Benson knew him, got me the part-time job there after school, making up bo- folding boxes for for ten shillings a week, which I used to give to my mother. So you know, I, I always felt growing up as the oldest with my mother on a war pension that I needed a supporter. Wow. That's a huge responsibility for a young lad. Yeah. So you've worked since you were really the age of 11. Yeah. yeah. So um, do you finish at school? Do you finish high school? Well, at the glass, the people at the glass company uh, encouraged me. I I started to get a job in the laboratory, which was cleaning it up and everything. Yeah. Uh, And... I like chemistry, and the people at the glassworks through Captain Benson encouraged me to um, enrol and start doing chemistry at RMIT. Wow. And uh, I got a scholarship from ACI, the glass company. Yeah. And in those days, they called them cadetships, and it was on the basis that they gave you a small stipend while you were studying. In my case, it was a pound a week. And that you signed on that when you graduated, you worked for them for three years. So the job you get working in the glassworks at 15 as a kid after school, that then you then stay on and they provide you with a scholarship to go to RMIT and then you come back and work at ACI. Yeah. And how long do you work at ACI for? Uh, Well, for 20 years. I finished up CEO of ACI. So you, you, start as, you start as a 15-year-old kid cleaning the laboratories in ACI and Spotswood. 20 years later, you're the CEO. Yeah, and I ran their global glass business, which we had factories in Malaysia, Thailand, Indonesia, all the capital cities of Australia, and I built three plants in China. So, Ray, under, you got- under the great Alan Jackson, who, who acquired ACI, 
he was the CEO of BTR and they took over ACI, you know, hostile takeover, and he appointed me CEO of um, ACI Glass. Now, I want to come back to Alan Jackson because you've told me before that uh, when I've asked you who's the best leader you ever worked for, you've spoken about him. So I want to come back and chat about Alan Jackson. But let's just talk about you in this role. How does a kid of the age of 15, 20 years later, become the CEO? Tell us about that. How did you do it? Well, I was probably just lucky. I was just in the right place at the right time. Ah, uh, no, it's I, more you just being lucky. I started in a laboratory at, at Spotswood for about six months, and I asked to go out to work in the factory into production which the manager at the time said, well, you know, that's strange. What do you want to do in production? I said, I just want to learn about production. So he put me on permanent night shift. And I found out later that Captain Benson, my legatee, had told him to put me on night shift. He said, that's the best way to learn, make him work hard. So, so Ray, for anyone listening to us today, and if uh, what advice would you give to anyone that wants to become a CEO of a, or a leader of anything? What what would be the undergirding themes for, that you would say are key? Well, you've got to have a goal. You've got to know in your own mind what you want to do and be resolute about that. And I mean, I, I probably because you know, as, as as a youngster, I had to be self dependent. I I always thought I wanted something that I could run, something that I could do and, and be in control of. So that's why I didn't want to stay in the lab where you were just on a bench, you know, with the chief chemist giving you bottles to, to test. I felt I wanted to go out into the factory, in the, something that I could get my hands around and control. So you knew as a young person, like even as, a, you know, young 20s, that you wanted to be the leader of this business one day. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, and you would say the key ingredients for that is hard work, being focused. What else? What, what else would you say are key to your, how you became the leader of this business? Well, A, you've got to, you've got to understand the business and understand what makes it tick and importantly understand the people that make the. I mean, the greatest lesson I had on working night shift was that you had to be dependent. My, my title was night shift supervisor, and you had to be dependent on. And the, and the sort of guys that work night shift on shift work aren't rocket scientists, and you've got to be dependent on them to do their job. And you learn after a while that most people don't want to do what they're told. I mean, all people are told not to smoke, don't speed. You know, people never do what they're told, and and you sort of, and night shift's the best time to learn that. I used to um, Spotswood was a big factory, and the far end of it, which was probably uh, four or five hundred metres up the back, is where they loaded. They used to load all the trucks during the night, so that seven a.m. they'd go out onto the road. So I used to run up and down there to watch the fork trucks to make sure they were loading the trucks. And this old guy grabbed me one day and he said, what do you run up there all night for? And I said, I've got to catch the fork trucks. And he said, well, I'll tell you how to do it. There's a railway line come through the factory. Put your ear on the railway line. And if you hear the vibrations, you know they're working. <laughs> and if, if they're not vibrating, then you can run up and catch them. 
So for you to become the leader, how how important was it that you actually knew your people well? I think it was essential. Mm. So you've got to know your business, got to know your people. No one's a leader without people. I mean, what leadership is about empowering people to do what you want, to yeah. achieve your goal. Yeah. You can't do it on your own and no one else can do it for you. So the so, only way you can get your result is to have the people working for you to do it. So, Ray, why do you think you were so successful? I mean, it, it, you know, you're because of some of your humility, you're going to say it's luck. You and I, it's more than luck. Why do you think you were so good at it? Well, I guess I got the result I I asked for or set out to achieve. I, I in most cases, achieved it. And you don't get promoted or moved unless you unless you have achieved things. Mm. And I, you only achieve it by having people around you that can do it. Interesting. And whether it be a basic thing like loading trucks overnight or making sure the furnaces are running, making sure that the uh, raw materials are being delivered, which was, you know, sounds pretty basic, but that was, you know, for two years, 7, 7 p.m. to 7 a.m. every night, that was my job. Wow. You mentioned 24-year-old. Wow. So you mentioned Alan Jackson before. Tell us about Alan Jackson because, I, I, as I said before, I know he was a really important influence in your life. So tell us about Alan Jackson. Well, Alan, Alan was the global CEO of a company called BTR, which was based in England, stood for British Tire and Rubber. They owned Dunlop and they owned uh, a broad range of uh, industries. And it, he and Richard Pratt decided that ACI was vulnerable and it would be a good takeover. And between the two of them, they did a raid on ACI. It was run by Andrew Grimwade at the time, who was the chairman. And they carved it up. Richard Pratt took the cardboard box business of ACI, what's called ACI Fibre Packaging. Yeah. And Alan Jackson took the glass business and some of the engineering businesses which he sold off but he kept glass and they did a deal that Pratt would supply the cardboard boxes to ACI because in those days most of the bottles were packed in boxes. And at the end of that, I didn't know Alan Jackson. I mean, no, everyone was fearful that Jackson had taken over ACI and all of our bosses were being dismissed and gone and I got a phone call. He had an office in St Kilda Road in the main Nicholas building in St Kilda Road. I got a call to go and see him, and I thought, oh, this is, you know, I'm, I'm going. I was running the Spotswood Glass Factory at the time, and I thought, oh, this will, you know, he's, he's been sacking everyone. I'm going. Well, I went in. And he, uh, there was a chair, and I went. As he said, don't sit down. We haven't got time to waste on that. You're in charge. And I said, what do you mean I'm in charge? The factory. He said, no, the whole bloody place, and get it. And I want a hundred million EBIT. <laughs> and, and he said, Andy Selman, he was his accountant, he's outside, he'll fill, fill you in on what we want done and ring my secretary and she'll fix up the paperwork. Wow. And I stood there and he said, that's it, we've talked. So I went out and this young Andy Selman, the accountant, was out there and he said, he gave me a folder, here's the business plan, here's the budget and this is what we've got to do. And he had this old secretary, Maureen, who was a tough old thing. I went over to her and said, what do you want? 
I said, Alan told me to see you. Oh, yeah, I've got to fill in the paperwork uh, and organise your, your, your pay. He said, she said, it's £3,500 a year. Wow. <laughs> wow. And, and so had you met Alan Jackson before? I had met him up until before that day. Yeah. So he takes it over and says to you, you're now the boss. Yeah. And you're reporting into him? Is he the chair yeah. of the board? Yeah. <laughs> so you're now the CEO of ACI Australia? Yeah. Wow. How long are you there for? Well, at that stage, I'd been there for about nine or ten years. And, and how long are you then as the CEO of ACI Australia for? Under for Jackson? The next- Next ten years. Wow. He wanted to grow. He wanted to grow into Asia, and we took over a plant in Thailand. We took over one in Indonesia, and then he wanted to get into China. And we built three greenfield sites in China. And I used to go to China two days a month. Wow. Um. So you you you're then the ACI leader. So tell me, in that ten years that you're the leader, um, what? How does it grow? Does the business grow during that stage? Yes, uh, we, we we built those plants in China, which were very successful. And the big breakthrough we had in Australia to grow the business, we developed the stubby. Did you? It was originally, I mean, in those days, you could buy beer in the large 750 mil returnable bottle that the bottlers used to collect yeah. and recycle, yeah. or the Crown Lager, which had been developed in the 50s for the Queen's visit. But that was the only really uh, single-serve glass pack made. Queensland had, had gone heavily into stubbies. They were called glass cans in those days. And the reason they worked in Queensland was that the aluminium can hadn't been developed. It was the tin plate can that was soldered. And, and, and in the climate in Queensland, they used to rust. Mm. Used to get a rust on it. So they developed what was known as the glass can, which we renamed as a stubby because Stubby was the nickname for a short guy in the army. A little bloke in the army was nicknamed Stubby. Is that true? Yeah. So that's where the Stubby has come from, from under your leadership um, and the branding and all that stuff, and that's now part of it. It was really through an advertising agency called Badger that we appointed. Yeah. Yeah. And they said, well, you're competing with the can. Why call it a glass can? Don't use their brand. We've got to come up with another name. And we did a deal with Foster's, with CUB, to call the bottle shops the stubby shop. You might have remembered there were signs outside a lot of the bottle shops and the pubs called the stubby shop because we wanted to develop the stubby as a brand. And that took off. And we really cleaned up the can market. Market share just grew. Wow, Ray. So, so Ray, you're then in the glass business for... 20 years at least. How do you get into steel? Well, our competitor in glass was Smorgans. Smorgans had a glass plant in Penrith in in Sydney and they had about 15% of the national market. And um, David Smorgan and George Caston were running that and they were a pain in the ass. Even though they're only 15% of the market, they were constantly trying to grow market share and dropping prices. And Alan Jackson said to me, why don't we take them out? Let's get rid of them. So we started to talk to him about buying, selling, and and um, we went and visited. And Sam Smorgan was the patriarch, and he said, "Well, everything's for sale. It's a matter of the price." 
Mm. And we, we we were told we'd have problems with what was then the trade practices. If we bought them, we'd be a monopoly. Mm. And we, we had an advisor called Bob Officer, who was a professor of economics at Melbourne Uni. Yeah. And he and Chris Richardson, who's now with Access Economics, they were our advisors, Max Case and Clayton Hood's lawyer, and we put up a case that we weren't in glass, we're in packaging. And and that glass only represented 30% of the packaging market, and all of our customers had an alternative, that our competitive pressure wasn't other glass bottles. We fought the breweries to get glass, not cans. We fought the soft drink companies to put soft drink into glass, not into PET, not into plastic, milk into milk cartons. Or, so we put up a, an economic case that Bob Officer worked very heavily on to say that our, the real competition was other packaging. It wasn't other glass containers. And we went through a six-month inquiry with the TPC under under um, it was Alan Fells was running the Price Surveillance Authority and Bob Baxt was running the TPC, the Trade Practices. And we went through there was an avenue where you could put up a, a case, and it was a six-month hearing, and we went through and we won permission to get to buy Smorgan Glass. Wow. And we bought we bought their glass business. And a, a couple of months after that, I got a call from Sam Smorgan to go and have a coffee with him. He said, would you be interested in joining us? You've been our competitor, but we've worked with you. Uh, would you like to join us, run our steel business? Because the family's going to um, stop managing the businesses. We're going to bring in management. Because up until then, all the Smorgan family ran all their businesses. So you've you've spent over 20 years in glass. You're asked yeah. to come across to steel. Yeah. Do you have to know anything about steel to run a steel business? Not really. It's, it's, it's not, not unlike glass. I mean, you start with a raw material, you have the furnace, melt it, then make a product. So how like long have you been? Morgan used to say it's no different to making a sausage. You get, you get meat, you grind it up, put it through, put a skin on it, and you've got a sausage. So, Ray, you become – did he, you come as the CEO of Smorgan Steel? Yeah. How long are you there for? Uh, 93 to 2008, 15 years. So you really only have two employers in your career, ACI yeah. and Smorgan Steel. Correct. So you become the CEO of Smorgan Steel. Does the business grow under your leadership? Yeah, dramatically. Uh, when I joined, it was doing $700 million a year turnover. When we sold it in 2008, it was doing $4.5 billion. Wow. So, so Ray, 15, we took it from seven hundred million to four and a half billion revenue. So Ray, under your leadership, why was that so successful? Tell us why was that successful? Well, we we virtually rationalised the Australian steel industry. We did a hostile takeover of A and I, which gave us the Newcastle Steel Mill and their steel distribution business. That gave us a channel to market. We then did a hostile takeover of email, which was we sold off their appliance business. They owned the uh, Simpson and Westinghouse appliances, but we got their steel distribution business. Then we did a hostile takeover of Metalcore that gave us scrap supply. So that rationalised the Australian steel business, virtually gave us control of half of the long products market. BHP had half, which they renamed One Steel, and they spun off their steel and the flat products become blue scope. 
the long products become one steel. And we had the other half of the long products, which was Morgan Steel. And but we, we actually did those hostile takeovers to block Ace so we could get control of the market to block BHP from dominating it. So your competitor was BHP. Yeah. Smorgan Steel was competing against the big Australian. Yeah. And yeah. in this time, under your leadership, we grow from $700 million to $4.5 billion. Yeah, well, it wasn't just through me. We had our board and the Smorgan family support. Yep, yep, absolutely so. Now, one of the things that I, I want you to talk about is the development of the team you had at Smorgan. Yeah. Because that team you had at Smorgan now lead and have led some of Australia's biggest companies outside of Smorgan. Mark Vassella at Blue Scope Steel, Nev Power yeah, yeah. at Waterskew, and yeah, yeah. um and Ray so Smith's on the board of um, Clean Away, yep. the Rod Laver Centre. It's so. Tell me about how you put that team together. Well, I mean to grow the the, the original Smorgan Steel business, which was very much Smorgan family, and they they were family members throughout the business working in it. We had to, we virtually had to restock it and find people that knew the industry that were and knew the outside world in effect. And um, Mark Vassella come through. We acquired Palmer Tube Mills, which was a Ross Palmer family business owned the tube mills in uh, Queensland, known as Palmer Tube. We bought them out and acquired that. Mark was a young sales manager there, and when we after we were we acquired the business, we had a look at the various management. When you take over a business, you tend to look at, you know, who, who's there and who, who you're going to keep and who's going to go. And there were a couple a couple of guys there. There was the production manager up there, a guy called Tony Schreiber, who was pretty good. We, I talked to him and, you know, he knew the process and he was the plant manager. He stayed. And Mark was the sales manager. And what I was impressed by Mark was that he was very customer-driven you know, I said, what what makes this business good? Oh, we've got loyal customers. We compete. They competed with tube makers, which was BHP, which was about twice the size of Palmer Tube. But Mark had uh, kept this focus on on customers who wanted two suppliers, didn't want to be all in one BHP camp. So, and I was impressed by his view on the market. So, so he stayed on. And after we, we acquired um, email, the, the distribution part of email, we needed someone to run it. And I moved Mark over because, again, it was a very customer-focused business, that, that end of the business. So we moved Mark over from the tube business into that um, distribution business to help win market share because his ability to deal with customers. And you saw that in him, didn't you? Yeah. And what did you see in Nev Power? Well, we needed someone to run the top end of the business, the steel mills, and, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a tough tough end of the market, and it was highly unionised. There was always problems with the unions. There were problems with productivity. So we needed somebody that uh, was, you know, had a lot of backbone that could take on that business and uh, change the culture and Im- improve the productivity. Dev was working at Mount Isa Mines. He was a mechanical engineer at Mount Isa Mines, only a young bloke, but he'd had experience with the smelters up there and 
we used a, a search guy called John Allen, who he's a sort of a one man. I think he's retired now, but he he, he did a bit of work around Melbourne for the Victorian government in appointments, and um, but operated just basically on his own as a one man search consultant, and he. They got about three or four names for us to interview, shortlist. But Nev stood out as a guy with determination and somebody that I just, you know, just sort of. I remember when he we flew him down for the interview and he brought his wife with him, and I thought that's interesting. You know, the other two we'd interviewed, we you know we'd met in meetings and normal interview process, but Nev arrived from Queensland with his wife Irma. And uh, he wanted to introduce her and talk about his family. And then she waited outside while we interviewed him. But I just, I was just struck by his determination. And I thought, well, there's a bloke who'll never take prisoners. That's what we want. So you were able to see into, you know, just the examples of Mark, who's now the CEO of Bluescape Steel, um, Nev Power, who was the CEO of Fortescue and is worked with the government now in the COVID response, yep. blah, blah, blah. You saw in those young men at the time yep. their particular unique talents and skills and could see how that could work for Smorgan Steel as it was then. Yeah, and how they fitted the jigsaw puzzle because they are different. They were different people but for different outcomes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so you brought this team together with different characters and so on and really work together to grow this, what we now is Smorgan Steel. Yeah. And we had Ray Smith as our CFO. Yeah. And, you know, Ray's gone on, he's been on a couple of public companies. I think he's on the KNS Transport Board. He's on the um, Clean Away Board. And he, and he was on the, um, I think he's still on the um, Tennis Australia, the Rod Labor Centre Board. Centre. Okay. But Ray was a good um, conduit through his CFO role. He had a good view of of the business, and he he helped bridge the differences between the Nevs and the Marks. And yeah. so you brought this group together, and and uh, were able to lead it. So in two thousand and eight, is it two thousand and eight, Ray yeah. um, Smorgan Steel? You uh, sell Smorgan Steel to them one steel, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. It started off originally, um, the idea was to put them together as a merger. And Graham Smorgan, our chairman, and Peter Smedley was the um, One Steel chairman, had met because we, we felt that there was an opportunity to combine them, and, you know, a bit like we did with ACI and Smorgan Glass, yep. put them back together and get the value. But the personalities didn't work. Uh, Peter Smedley was a difficult, difficult guy, and I think, the discussions between Graham and Peter just didn't work out who was going to be on top, who was going to be the CEO and all that. Bob Every, who was CEO of One Steel at the time, I don't think he, he liked the idea of the merger. So what started off as discussions about a merger finished up a takeover. And One Steel took over Smorgan Steel. Yeah, at a, at a very good premium. So you're out of a job then? Yeah, but you then become... Uh, well, I'd been approached um, a bit earlier than that. With, I mean, I was going to retire probably in 12 months after that anyway. And I'd told the Smorgan board that, you know, I'd probably retire in 09. 
a year after this happened, if it hadn't have happened, and I'd, I'd been approached by CSR to join their board, which is ba- was basically a building products business, even though they had the sugar business, it was more a building products business than sugar, and I'd been approached to join their board, and um, the Smorgan board were quite happy for me to join it because, you know, they said, well, you know, as long as it doesn't take a lot of your time away from your own job, we know you wouldn't do that anyway. Uh, we don't see any conflicts and it'll be good for you to do. So I joined the CSR board and then I was approached by Macquarie Bank, who'd been our, Alistair Lucas, who'd been our advisor in these takeovers we did, to see if I was interested in joining the toll board. And I met with uh, Paul Little and uh, the, the directors of Toll at the time and uh, agreed to join their board. So by the time the takeover of uh, Small and Steel had happened, I was on the uh, uh, CSR board and about to join the Toll board. Ray, tell us a bit about the different uh, – before I ask that question, I want to ask you – Tell us about when you're the CEO of both ACI and Smorgan Steel, you're relating to a board. Tell us about what's, what, for an aspiring CEO, what's he got to do in relating to a board and a chairman of a board? Well, first of all, you've, there's got to be mutual trust. It's terribly important. And, and the strongest uh, bond has got to be between the CEO and the chairman. You can't ignore the other directors, but it's primarily got to be a very mutual trust between the CEO and chairman, and you've got to ensure that you've got common goals, that the board's role is to ensure proper governance and develop the strategies, and and the CEO's got to come along with that. So as long as the CEO's not breaching any of the governance rules, he should be left alone to develop the strategies that the board's agreed on. And there's got to be mutual trust then between the chairman and the CEO that that's how it's working. And the chairman doesn't interfere. Yeah. And allows, because of this... Allows the CEO... To get on with it. To get on with it and to ensure that his staff is aligned to do it. Yeah. So when you finish at Smorgans, then you sit on CSR's board and you're on toll, and ultimately you become the chair of toll. Yeah. Um, and um, you and Paul Little is the um, CEO of toll. Yeah. And so that, once again, is a mutual trust relationship that you and Paul had. Yeah. And you provide the governance and allow Paul to get on and, and create toll. Yeah. Yeah, and that's how it works. And ultimately then, of course, you end up selling under your chairmanship. Toll is sold to the Japan Post Office, if I remember. Yeah, correct. Once again, at um, a very good price for toll. Well, at the time it was a record. It was 62% premium. So, Ray, help the listeners who are listening to this podcast. Why have you been so successful? Why? Well, I just think I I just had the ability to sort of see what can be achieved out of a business and to ensure that we had the people to work to deliver it, that we all worked on a common goal, that we all agreed on where the business could go and what we could do with it. And... My sense is, in knowing you well as I do, that not only do you use your brains, but you also use your heart, don't you? 
So in other words, you use your intuition at times to kind of, you know, what's right, what feels right and so on. That's important for you, isn't it? That is very important, yeah. And if it didn't feel right, so if, if Mark Fasella doesn't feel right as a as a young executive, you don't employ him, do you? No. Interesting. No. I've just got to feel comfortable that we're aligned. Yeah. And so you spoke about mutual trust between the CEO and the chair. It's also mutual trust between you as the CEO and the executive sitting around your table, isn't it? It is. And, and usually they're, they're people that are much brighter than than I am. So you employed, you intentionally employed people that were smarter than you and yep. built the relationship with them. Yep. So, Ray, many people would say, how, how does a bunch of blokes build trust in tough industries like manufacturing of glass and steel, but yet you've spoken, and transport, yep. you know, you've spoken about trust a fair bit. Trust is key, isn't it? It's paramount. I mean, it's no different to, you know, blokes in the trenches or blokes on a on a ship that's got kamikaze planes coming at it. And, yeah. and if Trust you, is about, you know, how you behave under pressure. Yeah, interesting. And if you didn't trust someone or if someone told you a fib or betrayed you, whatever, what would you do? Well, you've got to confront them with it and find out why and make sure it's not repeatable. And if it is? It is. They they can't stay. They can't stay. Interesting. Now, Ray, because it only takes one rotten apple to destroy the barrel. And you were conscious of that as a leader. Yep. Interesting. Now, Ray, it's like one black. You know, if the halfback flank is not minding his man, the team doesn't win. Yeah, that's right. So <laughs> I want to go into footy now. You were also on the board of Essendon Footy Club, and you became the chair of of. Is it any difference in uh, being the president of a footy club to being the chair of Toll? Yeah, very, very different. And um, it's something that took me longer than it should have to realise because, you know, I probably took over as chair of Essendon trying to run it as a corporation. Yeah. And uh, it, they just don't work that way. How do they work? Well, that, that they... They, they tend to be factionalised and they they tend to be very much driven by egomaniacs. As in footy clubs do. Yeah. So so the point in this, Ray, is that... People join footy clubs for, mainly for a passion, not for a, yeah. not, not for any other reason. So, Ray, you're the... You're, it took me a while to work that out. That out. So you're the CEO and chair of, of some pretty Australian major corporates that do incredible deals. You're the president of Essendon Footy Club. You're also the chair of the Ricky Ponting Foundation and so on. What I think the point you're saying is that you have to understand the organisation or institution that you're leading because that's going to demand different styles and different pro and different understandings of leadership. Is that correct? Correct. And and, and di different attributes to, to run them. The people running them need a different attribute. And and. Even if, once again, you know, when you're at Smorgans, you're intentional about building your team. When you're at Essendon, um, you didn't have total control over the building of your team, as in your other board members. No. And some of those were a little uh, sneaky, weren't they? Yeah, well, they were different anyway. I mean, 
the footy clubs are, are, are very much more run by the CEO than what a public company is. Mm, right. Interesting. And just for our listeners, you know, most CEOs of footy clubs treat the board as a necessity rather than as a value add. Uh, and now, in present days, you're uh, on the board of InfraBuild, which is owned by the billionaire Sanjeev Gupta. Yep. And uh, you play an incredibly important role representing him in Australia and so on. Tell us about what's it like to work for a billionaire. Well, in, in, in this case with Gupta, he, he's an entrepreneur and he's got a vision and he, he took this business out of receivership because he believed it could be turned around. And I joined the board because part of it was Smorgan Steel that I ran for 15 years, so I know a fair bit about that business. And, you know, my role, as because we had a good CEO in Dak Patel, yep. who knows the industry as well, but he wasn't experienced in public companies or in big, he'd run family businesses very well, but he wasn't so experienced in the corporate side of it. So the value I added, I think, was to give him the comfort and the advice to, to carry on and do what he was doing, that he was doing well. So I was a sort of link that between Gupta and him that I could give him local knowledge and experience in terms of running a big corporation, whereas Gupta is more the trader and the, the visionary, not a good runner of the business, but the vision for the business. Yeah, interesting. So, Ray, we have to come to an end, which is a real shame because it's just a privilege to listen to you. As you look back upon your career, you know, um, Infrabuilt, um, Smorgan Steel, One Steel, ACI, Essendon Footy Club, Ricky Ponting Foundation, blah, blah, blah. If you were to talk to a young leader today, what were three undergirding principles that you would say about leadership? What's three undergirding principles? What a key to success. The first one... A leader can't be a leader unless he's got a follower. Yeah. So the first thing is to understand what your destination is, where you want to go, and how can you bring your followers with you. Yeah. So you've got to, the first thing is you've got to align your followers that you're all going to the same destination. So it's important for the leader to have a clear understanding of vision. Yep. Yep. And that, he, that his people understand it as well. And there's no confusion about it, and there's no egos in the way of who's going to lead it, who's going to get the credit for it. Wow, interesting. Number two, what's the second principle? Number two is they've got to trust each other, and even though they might have different personalities, they've got to align to the goal and trust okay. each other. They're part of the of the team that they're going to deliver their section that achieves the final goal because the final goal only achieved by the individuals meshing together. So the trust is, um, the key of that trust is that if I've got a colleague and I'm sitting around your table, I may or may not like that person, but I've got to trust that he's going to deliver it. He's going to deliver your part, he's part of the deal. Yeah, right. It's a bit like, uh, you know, the centre-half forward mightn't like the, the guy who's in the centre. Yeah. But he's got to trust that he's going to kick it to him. Kick it to him, yeah. And kick it where he wants it. Interesting. 
And the third principle? Third the third principle, principle is you've got to be prepared to be flexible because you're working in an outside world that's very unstable. So whilst you've got a goal that's set at a point of time, six months down the track, the influences on that might change and you've got to be able to adapt to it. So there's an still, element... Still to reach your goal, but you might have to do a bypass. Yeah, right. So the goal is clear... But understanding that if if all of a sudden a pandemic hits us yeah. that no one saw, we've got to be able to work around that pandemic to be able to keep heading towards the goal. Yeah. Interesting. And adjust to it. Yeah. Right. And, and maybe bring in other resources or change yeah. change tack to still get to the goal, but in, in a different format. That's lovely. Ray, this has been an enormous privilege for you to spend your time with us. Uh, and share your experiences and your knowledge and your wisdom. Um, as from Apricot's behalf, we want to say thanks to you. And uh, you and I have got many more chats to do, just as, <laughs> as we do, certainly around footy and and business. Sort those umpires out. <laughs> <laughs> Ray, once again, it's been a real privilege to have you with us, brother. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, we really appreciate it. Thank you Thanks, very much. Thanks, Derek. Thanks, Ben. Pleasure. Thanks for listening to Inside Healthy Teams by Apricot Consulting. We hope you found it helpful. And if you did, it would help us if you could rate and review this episode on your podcast platform and subscribe for more episodes. For more information, go to apricotconsulting.us.